Well, good morning, everyone. It is really great to see you. Thank you for choosing to worship with us at the Vista. We say this all the time, but whether this is your first time here or whether you are a regular member or attender, we're always glad you've chosen to spend a little bit of your morning with us um, worshiping our King together. Uh, Before we get into our text, I just wanted to call your attention to this little connect card uh, or paper or whatever we call this thing. On your way in, the last few weeks, we've been trying to get one of these in your hands. Um, As this time of year, we always see a lot of new faces, and we would love to help you get connected. Uh, We talk about this all the time. We really want more for you than just attending a service once a week. Um, We want you to find a home. We want you to find a family. Be connected And there's a lot of ways you can get connected, involved from serving, small group, Bible studies, uh, different classes that we offer. And so if you'll just fill one of these out, uh, if you haven't already done so, you can place it in an offering box on your way out. Um, We will, one of our pastors will contact you and just help you, you know, answer questions or or take whatever next steps you are interested in. Uh, Our community pastor, Nick, wanted me to specifically mention the lead a group box up here, because as we grow, we need more groups to help people stay connected. And so if that's something you're open to, opening your home or hosting or leading a small group, uh, if you'll check that box, uh, Nick or Sarah, someone will reach out to you this week and just kind of talk about, about what that means to lead a, to lead a small group. So anyway, fill, fill one of those out. We would love to help you get connected. Also, this is my, my 10, uh, 10, 15 announcement. I know that the parking lot can be crazy, right? Getting in, getting out. We're trying to tweak and adjust some things to help the flow of traffic. Um, I remind our staff like, hey, these are good problems to have, right? Like the fact that our parking lot is kind of crazy, that's a good thing. Like people want to be at church, right? Really good. Um, Also wanted to go ahead and mention though that this particular service starting next Sunday, we're gonna ask you not to park at Bold Republic because they are opening, they're going to be offering brunch and we wanna be good neighbors and not completely hijack their parking lot so that they can actually, you know, have their business. And so uh, they're still letting us park there during the nine, but during the, during the later services, we're going to ask you not to park over there. Uh, again, the field and, and just being patient will help a lot. But if we could, if we could do that again and be good neighbors, that would be, that would be awesome. All right. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Revelation chapter two. Revelation two, we're continuing our series, The Apocalypse, a study of Revelation. Now, if you're new to the Vista, I know what you're thinking. You've walked in, you've seen Revelation, and you're like, oh no, one of them churches, right? I have stepped into one of those churches, right? Um, We are 16 years old as a church. Uh, We have never walked through the book of Revelation. This is not like, we're not one of those churches, like every other sermon series is about Revelation. That's not us. I I don't have charts or graphs or nothing. I'm not telling you when Jesus is coming back because I don't know and neither do you and neither does the person that would say he does, right? And so that that, that is not us. In fact, um, Austin came into my office about two months ago, maybe three months ago. We always try to talk about the next series, Hey, what are we going to, in the fall, what do we, we want to tackle? Like, what, what series do we want to do? And so Austin walks in and goes, hey, uh, what are you thinking for the fall? And I said, you know, I feel like we need to jump back into a book of the Bible. You know, we've done some topical things through the summer and the spring. I think it's time to jump back into and walk through a book of the Bible. And he said, I agree. Uh, I've been thinking the same thing. He said, do you have any, like, any thoughts on a particular book? And I said, well, you know, I've been thinking about a few different ones, but nothing I'm I know hill to die on, like there's nothing I'm absolutely convinced we need to study. And Austin goes, I've got one. And before you say no, that's always a good start, right? (laughs) Before you say no, hear me out. And that's kind of what he says. 
He says, what if we, we, we did the book of Revelation? And y'all, I, I think he said it in one of his sermons. I made a face like I had just smelt something really bad. I was like, <laughs> like, because here's the thing, like Revelation is one of those books for some reason people get so like, there's so many different like ways to approach it and look at some of the symbolism and the imagery and how you interpret this or that and what position you take and people just get crazy like locked into their position and and if you don't see it their way like you're unbiblical and we're going to get tons of emails and it's just going to be so I've always kind of been like I don't know about revelation it's just a lot of little unnecessary fights and and so I was kind of against it and then I remembered I remembered something now this some of y'all may not know this some of you do but this fall our elders have decided to give me to bless me with a sabbatical now that is like an extended break. Again, our, our 16 years here, I've never had a sabbatical. I have no idea what that's even going to be like, but I'm really, really grateful. I'm going to get a bit of an extended break here. Um, and so it dawned on me that I was like, wait a minute, I'm going to get a bit of a break. And the first half of Revelation is not all that weird, right? It's, it's pretty normal. <laughs> and then you get to the back half of the book and it gets, it gets really weird. But I'm going on sabbatical in about a month. <laughs> and I was like, hey, this is perfect. I'll help preach the first half of the book, and then I'll, you get the second half of the book, man. It's all you. And, and, and you can get all the emails, because I'm going to turn my email off, right? And so this works out, this works out great. Like, I'm going to help preach the first half of the book, and then Austin gets to tackle the second half of the book, and you can send all of your emails to austin at thevista.tv. And you can sort that stuff out all you want. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, this week and next, we're going to be looking at these seven churches. In chapters 2 and 3, um, Jesus essentially, through John, is writing letters to these seven churches. I have preached through the seven churches before. About four years ago, I did a summer series called Dear Church, and we took a different church each week and slowly kind of walked through and unpacked uh, what Jesus was saying to these seven churches. Um, this week and next, we're gonna, it's going to be like drinking through a fire hydrant. It's going to be a crash course, like all of those sermons crammed into like two. Okay, so we're gonna have to move really, really quick. And if you are interested, I think if you go to our website um, under, under watch, you can scroll back. I believe at least most of that series from four years ago is still up. So you can get a little more, a little more uh, detail on these churches. But essentially, Jesus is, is writing these letters to these seven churches. And these are real historical churches. They're not made up churches. They're actual churches. Um, and, and in some ways, they're, um, they're representative, if you will, of of all churches. Jesus is going to affirm them for some things they're doing really, really well, and then he's going to rebuke them for some areas and some things that they're doing wrong, and he's going to call them to repent um, over those areas where, where they're not quite getting it right. And, and, and I would say that our goal and our desire here at the Vista is to be a faithful church, and we want to be a faithful church um, for as long as God will allow us to, to, to be here. And in order to do that, um, I think it's wise to look at those that have gone before. We're not the first ones to, to do church. We're not the first ones to try to, to try to do this thing. And so it's wise to look at those that have gone before and go, hey, what did they do well? And let's imitate some things they did well. And then where did they begin to get their priorities out of line and get off a little bit? And let's learn from the things that in the areas in which they, they got it wrong, okay? And so we're gonna look at four. My goal is to look at the first four churches in chapter two this morning and see what we can learn from these from these churches. Now, if you've not read Revelation much, there is a lot of symbolism, a lot of imagery. It's part of what causes confusion. And so to understand the letters to the churches, you're going to hear things like, to the angel of the church write, 
The angel refers to the pastor, the shepherd, the leader, the elder of that church. Okay, that's who it's addressed to. And then it's when he talks about the lampstand, the lampstand is the church as a whole. Okay, so the idea being Jesus is the light of the world. The light is to shine in dark places. The church is to be like a lampstand where we are shining the light of Jesus into dark places. And so when you see angel of the church, think right, written to the elder, the leader, the pastor, and then the lampstand refers to the, to the church itself. And so here we go, Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel, the pastor, the shepherd, the elder of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in the right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you have found them to be false. For I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now again, if we stopped right there, that sounds like a really good church, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like a church I want to be a part of. They're they're, they're serving, they're working, they apparently are growing in their knowledge, their cognitive knowledge of who God is because they can spot false doctrine and false teaching. They're enduring patiently. Like, this sounds like a really hopping joint. Like, I bet it's hard to get into their parking lot too, right? On the outside, it looks really, 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 really good. They're doing some really good things, right? But here's what he says next in verse four. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So again, to be clear, he's not saying, I'm going to come and send you all straight to hell. That's not what he's saying. Remove your lampstand. What he means is this. If you don't repent and change, like you may still exist as a building, but, but you're not going to be the church, right? You're not going to be the church anymore, okay? Remove the lampstand from its place. He finishes up by just saying, look, look, this, um, again, commending them, uh, yet this you have, you, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about them at a different church here in a moment, uh, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So the church in Ephesus, um, again, on the outside, by all appearances, they look to be a, a vibrant, healthy, growing, doing some really great stuff. Um, they're, they're just an amazing church from the outside. But what Jesus sort of uh, says to them is, listen, the problem is you have abandoned, you have lost your first love. And what he's saying is you've abandoned, you've lost like your love and affection for me. That's what he's saying. Jesus is going, look, you're, you're doing a lot of religious stuff, but you don't have the love and the affection for Christ that you did early on. And so he tells them to repent and then to do the things they did at first. Do what you did at first that helped you get the love and affection for Jesus. We don't have time to turn there, but the story of the church in Ephesus is found in Acts chapter 19. You can turn there at some point later. Acts chapter 19, Paul rolls into Ephesus, which was just kind of a wicked city. I mean, a lot of pagan idolatry, sorcery. Um, One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was there. It was a temple built to the goddess Artemis. Um, People would sell these little silver statues of Artemis so people could purchase those and then worship this temple goddess. Uh, Temple prostitution was huge. And so kind of tells you a little bit about the culture of the city. It was just kind of a, a wicked city. 
cool story. Paul rolls into town. People begin to hear the gospel and get saved, and it absolutely changes people's lives so much so that, that the city is beginning to change. Like there were whole areas of the city that sold these little silver statues to Artemis that were going out of business because people didn't want to buy that stuff anymore. It's a really cool story. And we're told in, I believe it's chapter 19 of Acts, verse 18, the one thing that it, they actually did, Jesus said, return to what you did at first. So what did they actually do? It says people were literally sort of coming out of darkness into light. They were coming out and they were confessing their sin. They were, they were burning all their books of magic and sorcery and all that stuff. They were literally confessing like their struggles and their sin. And so it's this beautiful picture of like, what happens when you, you understand the depths of your depravity and you, you more fully understand what Jesus actually did for you and the grace um, and the love and the forgiveness that it took to save you, that's Ephesus' story early on. We're sinners. We need Jesus. We don't care who knows about our sin. We're going to confess this stuff and we're going to get rid of it. And they grow in their love and their affection for Jesus and the gospel. And then 40 years later, they've gone from that to a church that's like really concerned with looking good on the outside, but they've lost their love and their affection for Christ. Can I just tell you that as a pastor, this is what absolutely terrifies me, that you can have a really good looking church on the outside that appears to be booming and doing great things, but there is a possibility that you could lose your love and your affection for Jesus. When I read the story of the church in Ephesus, what I do is go, man, I, I like some of the stuff they're doing, but I don't want to become this church. Man, I don't, I don't want to become this church. What I wrote down about the church in Ephesus, where they got their priorities out of line, is that the church is in danger. I believe the church is in danger when it prioritizes religious appearance over real love and affection for Christ. When we become more concerned with what people think of us, what, people, what we look like on the outside, than we are what's really going on in here. And what is true for us as a church is true for you as an individual. That when you get to places in your life when you're more concerned about what people think of you on the outside than you are having real love and affection for Jesus, you're, you're in some danger, right? You're in danger. In fact, I would say it this way, if that is you, then you are either there or you're on your way to becoming a Pharisee because that's, exa that's exactly what the Pharisees of Jesus' day were doing. Look real good on the outside, nothing on the inside, right? That's what's going on in Ephesus. In fact, I think one of the great lessons of the church in Ephesus is this, that, that trying to keep up religious appearances may actually rob you of affection for Christ, right? Trying to, trying to keep up those religious appearances means you're not being honest about your sin. You're not confessing any of your struggle. You're not living in community. You're just putting on the facade and it actually has the opposite effect. You look more holy, but you're actually not. You look more holy, but on the inside, you're not growing in your love and affection for Jesus. And so that's the big lesson to me of the church in Ephesus. Don't prioritize religious appearance over real love and affection for Christ. The next church mentioned here is the church in Smyrna. The church in Smyrna um, and the church, we'll look at one next week, the church in Philadelphia, are only two of the seven that Jesus actually doesn't have anything critical to say about them. He's not rebuking them for something they're doing wrong. He's literally just kind of trying to um, acknowledge where they are and affirm them. So here's what it says about the church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and I know your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and to the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Jesus is essentially just acknowledging that Smyrna, man, it's, it's a difficult place to be a Christian. He's, he's telling them, man, I know the tribulation. Smyrna was, um, it was a pretty wealthy city. Um, Smyrna was known as a place that was really hostile to the gospel. In fact, if you study your church history, you might remember some of you, uh, if, you if we have any uh, you know, Christian studies majors in here, like Smyrna was a, a place that actually uh, murdered a lot of the early church fathers, um, the most prominent of which was a guy named Polycarp. They burned him alive at the age of 86 because he would not bow down and worship Caesar. And so Smyrna was just this really difficult, hostile place to be a Christian. In addition to all that persecution, um, it was financially hard on Christians because um, they, they weren't allowed to own businesses. They weren't allowed to really buy and sell. There were economic sanctions on Christians. And so even though they were in a really wealthy city, uh, they lived in, in a lot of just abject poverty. And yet, here's what's awesome. Jesus looks at them and says, look, I, I know your struggle. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. But then he says, but you're rich. You catch that? He calls them rich, right? It is possible to be physically poor and yet spiritually rich. Spiritually, um, to have this richness that the world knows nothing about and that is completely different than your circumstances, right? And so here's what I started thinking about this week. While Smyrna seems to be a good church that is physically poor but spiritually rich, the opposite can also be true, and that is that you can be physically rich and yet spiritually completely bankrupt and poor, right? Which I think is probably something we all need to make sure we're guarding against. It's possible. I think the church is in danger when it prioritizes physical riches over spiritual riches. I never want to be that place that's always like, all we talk about is money and, and give more money and God needs your money and, and we need to do this thing. Like, there's a place for that to be sure. We've talked about those things, but like, we don't ever want to become a place where we're all about the physical and not about the spiritual. I think you're in danger when you begin to get those priorities out of line a little bit. And I think there's a lot of places in scripture I could point you, a lot of places I could kind of show you where that is indeed the case. Um, I'll, just, I'll just read a few of them really quickly. Over in Matthew chapter six, uh, verses 19 and 21, 19 to 21, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Over in Mark chapter eight, pretty popular verse, Jesus says again, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Over in the first Timothy, first Timothy chapter six, verses six through 10, Paul writes, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. 
It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I could go on and on and read different passages, but all of them kind of point to the same big idea. And that is that you don't want to get to the end of your life being physically rich, but spiritually poor, right? You don't want to get to the end of your life being physically rich, having pursued all of those things, but yet be spiritually poor. And I think most of us sort of cognitively know that we're not taking our stuff with us. You've all heard that, right? You can't take it with you. You're not taking it to heaven with you. It is staying here, right? And yet, I feel like we spend so much of our time pursuing the wrong kind of riches. That's the simple question, I think, the lesson from Smyrna. What kind of riches am I pursuing? Now, again, I want to be clear. Being rich, being wealthy is not, is not, is not a sin in and of itself. It is not a sin. We've talked about this. Um, just like some would, you know, we, we don't have a prosperity gospel here. Prosperity gospel is God wants everybody healthy and wealthy, and that's, that's a false gospel, right? So is a poverty gospel that would say, oh, God wants everybody poor. You're closer to Jesus if you're poor. Like, neither one of those things are, are, are accurate. There's, there's rich people, there's wealthy people, there's poor people. There always has been in the history of the world. Jesus had some poor friends. Jesus had some wealthy friends, okay? At the end of the day, the question is, though, are we spending our wheel? Are we, are we spending our life? Are we spending the time we have that we're given pursuing the physical riches? Or are we trying to build and store up treasures in heaven? Are we building spiritual riches towards God? I think the church is in danger. We begin to prioritize physical riches over spiritual riches. Luckily, the church in Smyrna, is, they were doing really, really well. They weren't, they weren't giving in to that temptation and so Jesus doesn't rebuke them or condemn them in any way. He's just encouraging them. The next church is the church in Pergamum. The church in Pergamum. He says this, To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. So again, a difficult city. And yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the, the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teachings of, there they are again, the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon. I will war against them with the sword of my mouth he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches and then to the one who conquers. There's some imagery here. I will give some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Okay. Um, again, there's a lot of imagery that's happening and I don't have time to unpack all of that, but I want to explain what's happening in, in Pergamum. Pergamum apparently had some people that were believing some false gospels. Okay. Um, and it sounds like it's two different ones, Balaam and the Nicolaitans, but when you read about these particular um, heresies, they're actually very similar. Um, they basically stated that you um, could have Jesus and, and be saved, so to speak, have just enough Jesus to save you. Like you could be a Christian and believe in Christ, but then how you lived your life it didn't really matter. You could essentially do what you wanted to do, live how you want to live. So you could have Jesus and go to heaven, but you know, how you treat other people and how you conduct business and who you sleep with and every sensual desire of your heart, you can just do that stuff, no big deal, right? That's the problem with these particular false gospels. 
They sound really good on the outside and they sort of smack Jesus' name on it, but they're, but they're a lie. They're a lie. It's the same thing today. We've talked about it before where, where people want to sort of have just enough Jesus to make sure they get into heaven, right? But they don't really want to make him Lord of their life. They don't really want to pattern their life after Christ. They just want, again, kind of corny, but they want their fire insurance, right? Like they want their get out of hell free card. That's what they want, right? And so it's the same thing going on in Pergamum. You know, some of these people are like, Jesus is good. We like Jesus, but we're going to live however we want to live. Every sensual desire of our heart, we're going to follow through. And so what I wrote down about this church is that the church is in danger when it begins to prioritize false gospels that sound really good and sound really appealing over the real gospel, right? There will always be a temptation There will always be a temptation for you to easily, readily, and quickly believe something that makes you feel better about you. That's just true in life, right? I love to listen to things that make me feel good about me. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, all the stuff you really love and wanted, all those sinful desires of your heart, you know what? You can still do all that stuff. It's fine. There's a part of you that goes, that sounds pretty cool. Like, I, I like that. Like, no guilt, no shame, no, no, no condemnation. No, I can do whatever I want. That's what's happening in Pergamum. It's this false belief that says, it doesn't matter how you live, doesn't matter what you do, just slap Jesus' name on it, and, and you're fine. And again, that kind of like weird cultural Christianity where Jesus can be Savior but not Lord, that just doesn't exist. That just doesn't exist in the, in the, in the Bible. It's just not something that Jesus is ever okay with. And so the lesson we learn is not to prioritize these false gospels that sound really good and appealing over the real, true gospel. How you live your life matters when you meet Jesus. And so, and that kind of goes into the last church we'll look at, the church in Thyatira. And I just have a few minutes left. Here's what he says to the church in Thyatira. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service, patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So again, sounds like a good place. Like on the outside, they're doing some really good stuff. Verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Here's what's going on in Thyatira. There is apparently um, a woman. Most scholars would, would, would say that her name most likely was not Jezebel. Uh, Jezebel was an Old Testament queen who was basically like a mass murderer. Um, and, and so her story was really popular. Everyone would have heard that story. And so no one's in their, their right mind is going to name their daughter Jezebel, okay? There's just names when you're throwing out baby names. There's some names you don't, you, don't, you don't say. Like, hey, how about baby Hitler? No one says that, right? Like, that's just not a good baby name, okay? Uh, Jezebel, no one's gonna name their kid Jezebel. So most likely, this is a bit of a pseudonym for a, a woman or a particular group in the church that was basically in the church, leading people into, seducing people into sin, in particular, sexual sin and debauchery, and the church was sort of turning a blind eye to it and just ignoring it. So notice the problem Jesus has isn't, I mean, it's, it's not directly with Jezebel and the fact that she's there, 
The problem he has is with the church for condoning or ignoring or tolerating her, her sin and deception. This is a, apparently a very sort of soft, weak, very passive church that doesn't want to deal with sin problems. They don't want to call people out for their sin. They don't want to tell anybody to repent. No one's going to approach this woman and go, hey, what you're doing is sinful and it's wrong and you got to stop. No one wants to do that. So instead, they're just trying to be really, really inclusive, right? Here's what I wrote down. The church is in danger when it begins to prioritize inclusion over discipleship or at the expense of discipleship. Now, I want to be really clear. We want to be a very inclusive place. Here's what I mean by that. Um, We use the phrase loved, welcomed, and wanted. We want you to feel loved, welcomed, and wanted. Uh, Austin talks about the fact that he's like, look, I can remember what it's like to go to church for the very first time. It takes some courage to step foot inside a church when you haven't been there in forever. You're not really sure about that place. I don't ever say that. You know why? Because I was raised in the church since I was a little baby. I actually don't know what it's like to step foot inside the church for a very first time. And that has its own set of issues and baggage, right? Like that's not better all the time. Like, but, but the reality is, um, listen, We want to be a place where you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted from the time you walk in. Because the beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to clean yourself up before you come to Jesus. You don't. You don't have to go make your life better or get all your junk together, be a better husband, father, wife, mother. You don't have to do that. You don't have to like make things right before you come to Jesus. And so as a church, we want to say, look, all of us, despite our sin and our baggage and our struggle, are welcome at the foot of Jesus. The reality is Jesus meets us and receives us as we are. But hear me, church, he doesn't leave us that way, right? He doesn't leave us that way. And the problem is there's so many times people want to come to Jesus. We want to, we want to come in and go, here's all my sin and all my struggle and here's you know, my life. And we just want the church, Christ, to just leave us alone about that stuff. And that's not the way that it works. I love the Gospels and the fact that all through the Gospels, you get these, you get these sort of glimpses into Jesus' one-on-one interactions with different people. It's this beautiful part of the Gospels where you get to see the one-on-one interactions he had with people. He met with a woman at the well who was a, had a, had a, a bad sexual rep, uh, like. Image. I mean, she, she had had at least five husbands, and the guy she was living with, sleeping with at the time was not her husband. He uh, interacts with a woman caught in the act of adultery, caught in the act of adultery, drug right in front of him. Or someone like Zacchaeus, who was just a liar and a cheater, shady business practices, ripping people off. Or how about Nicodemus or the rich young ruler, all concerned with materialism and wealth, and that was their pursuit. You get all these glimpses into the one-on-one interactions Jesus had with all these people. And not one of them does he look at them and say, hey, you need to go clean yourself up first. You, You need to fix your life, then I'll talk to you. No, he never does that. He meets them, he receives them, he engages them where they are, but hear me, When they meet Jesus, they're changed. They're different. They walk away different. Not one of them does he look at and go, hey, all the stuff you're doing, it's fine. It's fine. In fact, he says, go and sin no more. And the one one of the ones we read about that refused to do that was the rich young ruler and what? It says that he walks away sad because he was unwilling to change. He didn't want to give up any of his riches or wealth. He wanted to keep pursuing that stuff. And so, again, the big idea is that 
Man, all are welcome, loved, welcomed, wanted. We want to be this inclusive place where, where people feel like, man, I can, I can come in here no matter what I struggle with, no matter what I'm tempted with, no matter what sin I, I, is my sort of vice. And I can come because Jesus loves me and he accepts me and he died for me. But listen, when we encounter Jesus and we learn to walk with Jesus, he doesn't leave us in our sin. He doesn't leave us like that. So Thyatira is this lesson that we don't want to prioritize inclusion over discipleship because at the end of the day, the, the main thing Jesus asks us to do as a church is to make disciples, to make disciples. So this is a really, again, kind of a quick crash course through these first four churches in Revelation 2. And there's a lot of different lessons that we can learn as a church. At the end of the day, we want to be a faithful church. We want, to, we want to imitate the things they did well, and we want to learn from some areas where they began to get their priorities a little bit out of line. We don't want to be a place that prioritizes religious appearance over real love and affection for Jesus. We don't want to be a place that prioritizes physical riches over spiritual riches. We don't want to be a place that sort of prioritizes these false gospels that sound really good and appealing because they make me feel better about me, but in fact, they're, they're actually a lie. And we don't want to prioritize inclusion over discipleship. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful today for these churches that have gone before us that really do have a lot to teach us about what it means to be a faithful church that honors you. Lord, I pray that we could, God, imitate the things where they got it right, the areas in which they got it right, and then, God, we could learn from the mistakes that we could avoid some of those pitfalls, some of those snares, that we could avoid getting our priorities out of line. And God, I know there may be some here today that would just be honest and say, man, I've really, I don't have the love and the affection for Christ that I once had. And God, I know that I have felt like that from time to time. So I pray today that you might just help us, that you might just stir our love and our affection for you in a new and a fresh way today. I pray that we would not get caught up in physical appearance and looking spiritual and looking holy over real love and affection for Jesus. I pray, Father, we would not prioritize physical riches. We would not spend our lives pursuing those physical things to the neglect of the spiritual things in our life. I pray we would not listen to false ideologies, false gospels, but we'd hold fast to the real and the true gospel that you love us and you died for us. Lord, I pray that we would not prioritize inclusion over discipleship. God, may we be a place that creates and makes followers of you. And this is our prayer today in Jesus' name. Amen.